Hey folks, this is Boris Jabez, and you're listening to The Sequel Show. It's hard to pick out any favorite episode of mine, but definitely one of the most memorable conversations I've had was the one with Ben Stansel last year. For those of you who might not remember, Ben is the co-founder of Mode Analytics, and we had an epic debate last year where we talked about whether analysts should be willing, how far they should be willing to go to persuade an executive to make a decision. And it led to a really fun blog post on his part and just expanded my, my points of view. And so I thought it'd be a great time to bring him back and keep going on the, the topic of controversial opinions. So we asked ourselves this one simple question. What should you do when you mess up, when you discover an error? And this seems like a straightforward question, but we went back and forth on it. We ended up discussing a bunch of different anecdotes, everything from uh, census puns to all-you-can-eat restaurants. It was a really fun conversation, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Ben, nice to see you again. Last time you and I did this, we got into a whole conversation about whether it's one thing to come up with what the answer to questions is and the other to persuade your management or the executives about what you want them to do, right? Mm -hmm. I think I fell pretty hard on the line of like, yeah, the ends almost justify some of the means. <laughs> and you should, if it makes the company move in certain directions, like you should do it. And I think that's probably something difficult for, for people who care about truth and mathematics and statistics to, to deal with. But I do think it's still how I feel like months later. I stand by it. You stand by it too? Okay, great, great. Stand okay, by So we it, can yeah. still be both of us just as controversial as before. So then that opens this question, which is, okay, so if kind of the ends justify the means to some degree, right, of like your job as an analyst is to help an executive make decisions and like, you know, the charts are just a storytelling mechanism, right, amongst many others. So what do you do when you screw up or someone else screws up and basically you've been saying something incorrect. <laughs> I think that's something we didn't touch on last time that probably worth we, looking We did at. not. Intrepidness to be persuasive. We didn't think about what happens if we persuade people of something that's totally wrong because the things we're looking at are wrong. So I don't know. So, so this happens a lot, obviously. It happens a lot in both big ways and subtle ways. To me, it happens a lot in, in ways where data gets restated, basically like the way you do reporting changes. Yep the thing that you thought you were tracking turns out you weren't really tracking quite the right way. There's some model that you had where it's like, oh, this is the way we count page views and you actually get it wrong. And there's another version of this too where you you just do the analysis wrong, where like sometimes right. you send something and then you go back and you're like, I made this recommendation, here's all these beautiful charts. And then you have this sort of moment of terror where you look at it and you're like, wait a minute, like I, that's that's not what that should have said and all these things we did was, was wrong. And so like, I, yeah, I, to me, there's a, a question that I've never actually seen anybody sort of try to address which is what happens then? Like, where do you go? And I think there's there's like some kind of common sense ways to handle this, I guess, which is like you tell people and you're upfront about it and you have like an AAR, which is this after action review thing that is like what engineering teams do. And you do the blameless retro and it's all this kind of like big sort of kumbaya about the problem and everybody be transparent and we'll all be better. For mm -hmm. And like, maybe, but the question I would have on this and, and the, the way that I've posed this before is, 
part of it, I think, comes from the fact that it like feels right. Like it seems ethical to do. Yeah. You want if you're designing an organization from scratch for anything, you'd be like within the organization, we should always be if you're hiding things because you're embarrassed. That's that's just bad organization. Right. It just seems wrong. It's like not even ethical. It's like it also just seems suboptimal. Yeah. And like transparency is like, okay, great. We all believe in that. And it's like a very Silicon Valley thing now. And okay, great. My, My question is. If you remove all of the ethical pieces and say, like, forget the ethics completely, not because we should forget about it, but for the sake of the conversation, at least for now, forget it. What would be the result that you actually want to get to after you realize this dashboard is wrong? Like, like, say you're in a state where you're staring at the query, you're like, oh, God, I messed this up. The thing mm-hmm. that we've been telling our board for the last four months is wrong. It's not way wrong. It's not wrong in some, like, disastrous way. The money's in the bank, still in the bank. We also check our bank statements. But like the daily active user number, which isn't an accounting thing, it's just like the dashboard that we show them to show progress, turns out it's been off by 5% every time. And like, you know, with some randomness, some days 10, some days two, but for the most part, it's like we've overstated it by five to 10%. Mm-hmm. We've double counted Android users in the wrong way. And so now like, oh my God, we've messed up. What do you do? And before you think what do you do, what state do you want to be in that? Where If you could just like snap your fingers and be somewhere, what is right. that state given that right. you have to be in this state today? Yeah, I think... The easy answer, again, seems to be like, well, you'd want to adjust and then you'd want to think through who needs to be made aware of that adjustment, right? That seems to be Mm -hmm. like the easy answer. But let's say you really put on your full company hat on. And let's say the thing you've been wrong about, let's get topical, Ben, is the percentage of spam bots on your platform. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just hypothetically. (laughs) Just hypothetically, you had a moment in the shower and you're like, I think we've been calculating it wrong. You don't have to put that into production uh, uh, right away. (laughs) And so I think even things that are off by a sufficiently, like even a low percentage where you might think this is nothing, like let's just fix it, right? If you have the full purview of the business, which I suppose a lot of people who sit in data, that's our superpower is that you actually have Mm. some amount of breadth of understanding what's going on. I don't think it's an obvious answer that you're like, yep, just restate it. Like just, just fix it. The, 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 the downside could be super massive. So, okay. So my brain goes to, we have rules and regulations about some of these things, right? Like you don't get to retroactively change past like financial reports in the public markets, Mm -hmm. right? Like you can to restate them. You can say in your next one, like we made a mistake in the past, but like the past stays and the present is then restated. Right. Mm -hmm. And we force you to do that. I think like, I think, standard like securities fraud play there but those are all tied to something that is you'd have it has to be in the realm of securities fraud right like you have to be defrauding your investors in some form whether that's the public or or your private investors and i do think like the majority of day-to-day data analyses are not that like take spam bots like yeah it gets reported but prior to this year i don't think twitter was like, oh, like it's 6%, it's 4%, it's 5%. Like it probably mattered to advertisers, but like, I don't think they were thinking about it as a life and death question. Yeah. And suddenly it becomes one. So I don't think my, I'm going to take the side of evil and say like, it doesn't seem like a clear cut always you should just restate and like, you know, immediately adjust and move on. There's probably stuff that you would want to factor in before you do that. And so, so is that, but like, when you say don't just restate, do you mean... 
don't just like change the query and tell nobody or change the query and put out an announcement being like, by the way, this was wrong. Here's what happened. Here's the new number. Or is it something where it's like, in some ways it's like you go through this process of figuring out how much you actually need to say this. And then sometimes you say it and sometimes you don't like, I got to say, say you are the person who's sitting there staring at the query for the spam bots and you're like, Ooh, might've gotten this one wrong. And say you're not like getting bought by Elon Musk at this point. Say this was, say this was a year ago sure. and you're like, oh, I might've gotten this wrong. Like I said, it, it is a it is a number of I would say I, medium importance. I think to, to Twitter at yeah, the time, yeah, because it probably affects like what advertisers are willing to pay, right? So it, it almost certainly has an effect on the bottom line. Just stating what because I think that's the idea, right? Like X percentage of spam bots means like the advertisers are like, how many humans am I getting, and therefore yeah. I'm willing to pay this price in the auction or whatever it is, right? So it's not a nothing. So you shouldn't you should probably run that up some chain of like, what is the right way to release this? But then if you and I are in the chart, like let's say they put us in the VP position there, I would guess we should come up with a model by saying like, what, it always comes down to like, what is material? And so if it affects the dollar amounts of the company zero, or if it affects recruiting zero, or if it affects, you know, like some part of the company very like infinitesimally, then just do it, right? Arguably don't Mm. even announce it, just fix it. Just just fix it and move on. Mm. Let's say if it means the average ad is going to change in price by let's say one or 2% at at Twitter because of this, which probably is visible in the yearly reports, right? At the end of the day, like that's sizable at their scale. Then there's probably, you probably have to be careful. And then what really worries me there is like your boss is going to be like, can you please find a way not to do this? (laughs) That's really what's going to happen, right? Is they're going to be like, is there any way you could not be wrong? (laughs) Yeah. I had a thought on this that, that completely doesn't work, but, but it's, there's another version of this maybe, which is like feeling like a little bit of trying to have your cake and eat it too, mm-hmm. of doing sort of the the, the journalistic approach here. Of, okay. So so there's, there's two things to me about the journalistic side that's, that's interesting. One is they have to issue corrections. They have to issue them somewhat regularly. They issue them in like relatively low-key ways where it's just like something at the bottom being like, we spelled this person's name wrong, or they said they were from Seattle and it turns out they're from Portland or whatever. Sure, okay. They also, some people will just issue corrections, like the way they used to do it, right, was they would issue corrections as like a thing on its own. It was like, oh, this is the corrections page. If you want to look at the corrections, go to the corrections page. But like, it's sort of like a like a, a note sort of thing that you have to proactively seek out. Like we can do our job of actually saying we corrected it, but we don't actually broadcast it really. Like we're not putting it, we're kind of doing it yeah, in a way yeah, where it's yeah. like, yeah, it's there, but like, yeah, you know. So so in the spam bot thing, like it's just suddenly the number changes. And now within the corrections and restatements section of, of Twitter's quarterly filings, there's just like, we did this number. It's now all, you know, some little note about it that if you mm-hmm, want to go through. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so maybe something like that. I don't know. And again, how do you do that internally? Well, internal? then you're, 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 you're hoping, this is like the, you dump all your bad news on a Friday because then there's, you want to make sure the journalists are busy covering other things, right? Like you can get tactical about, about those things, which all still mm-hmm. smells like you're trying to hide stuff. But, but I, I, I agree. That's a good way to eat your cake. Sorry, have your cake and eat it too. I thought you were going to go a different route, which is a statistical nerd to have your cake and eat it too. Which, which is, is, I think my mathy statistical version of this would be, why can't we as a society, let alone inside companies, state numbers with confidence intervals? Like why, why are we unable to do this? So I have a thought on this and I agree-ish. So this was the, 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 the post about this, actually, this was my suggestion. It was not confidence intervals because I think confidence intervals are kind of hard to, to, to state. Plus what I think you actually end up with, like you sort of end up with confidence intervals, but really what you usually end up with is like, an average with a confidence interval around. And you're like, here's the line and here's like our confidence sure. interval around. Like, sure. 
And, and so what people end up seeing is, and, and like 538 does this, or they used to, I don't know exactly what they do now. Now they have little like floating heads and stuff and it's all kind of nonsense. But they used to basically be like, Joe Biden's chances of beating Trump are 56.8% with a confidence interval of 10%. Right, right. And the way that you're supposed to interpret that, right, is like, well, it's somewhere between he's slightly less likely to win, like Trump is slightly likely to win to Biden's going to win three out of four times or what, you know, something roughly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. The result of that, though, is I think most people look at it and they think Biden's going to win with 58.9 whatever percent chance I said. Like, like they just read the, the, the number in the middle. Yes. And like kind of throw out the confidence interval and kind of say like, oh, I should be so roughly so certain, but I'm still going to look at this number in the middle. And because that number is often presented, presented with some precision, I'm going to like assign it some precision in my head. 58.6% is meaningful in some way. It's like, it's not, it's, yes. it's a, it's a mathematical like quirk that the fact we can say that nobody has any idea what that number is. It's certainly not 58.6%. This was the thing that I actually stole from, from Sean Taylor, the semi-Twitter famous data scientist, good guys who used to work at Facebook and, and Lyft okay. and did like, it does a bunch of like causal experimental stuff. And, and yeah. he's a, he's a good follower on Twitter as well. He was talking about this, about how I think it is at Facebook or how he approached it at Facebook about how he presented in this case, actually confidence interval about, okay, we, you know, we have this percentage of chance of this interval. He basically was like, there's a really cheap way to do this, which is you just round it. Instead yeah, of saying 58.6%. People, people get it. Yeah. You just say 60%. Everybody knows it's not actually 60%. Yep. They just sort of look at it like, yeah, okay, I can ballpark that. You do like the 60% chance of rain thing. Absolutely. Uh, I don't. I think we can do that. And we sort of do it in some places. But I think we could actually just do it with numbers that we can very easily count to the exact integer, but just not actually say it. Like, like why does it matter if we had 21,311 like, visitors to our website yesterday? Yeah. Who, it's just 21,000. Who cares about the rest? Exactly. The and like, magnitude if you have to adjust the number 5%, it's still 21,000. Nothing changed. It that seems weird. And I, I think people get upset about it because you're like, can't you just, they're people. Can't you tell me how many people? And it's like, no, I can't. It's like a crowd size. I don't know. I can't believe I'm doing this, Ben, but I'm going to make a census pun. But like, isn't this a perennial conversation about the US census and whether it should be done by literal counting versus by statistical sampling? I have no idea. You, you don't know about me. this? So, so I think, so th- I think, I don't know if this is like an active conversation, but I, it definitely thing, which is actually counting the 330 something million Americans is difficult, right? We, we know this, it's error prone, yeah. but, but it's unbelievably expensive. And even if it wasn't expensive, like it makes mistakes in all sorts of ways. It just has to, but it's constitutionally mandated to count the humans in the United States. And it really is kind of like count the humans. I think you could demonstrate, I think this has been studied, like you could demonstrate that a sampling approach and then statistical kind of extrapolation from those samples would be closer to truth, like than the sense than the census, like than the actual like you would actually be more within you know the exact number if you did it through sampling and extrapolation from samples. But how could you explain to people that the way we're going to count the humans in the country is by random sampling and extrapolation? <laughs> Like, yeah, it by, by like a, yeah, a bunch of like mathematical hocus pocus is actually going to tell me how many people are here rather than me just asking everybody like to yeah. write your yeah. name down and I'll count your names. Yeah. Yeah. Which of course it's still totally ridiculous, right? Cause they go to every door and be like, how many people live in your house? Like all of it is error prone, but conceptually, I think we, we're not comfortable with the idea of statistically sampling how many humans live in the United States for political purposes. And I think it's the same for this, right? Like you're right. Web visitors. 21, what is it? 21,311. Yeah, the 311 is utterly uninteresting. If you're in tech, especially, you're like, your job is to get it from 21,000 to 40,000 anyway. Like, yeah. And and even your growth rates, like, we trying to say, oh, did you grow like 17%? I'm like, 
Did you grow five, 10, 20? Like, like it's, the orders of magnitude are magnitudes ish, not really orders of magnitude, but it's like, yeah, it's, it's just, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a Fibonacci sort of thing. Like that, that's basically the only numbers that matter. Like every, every metric should just be a Fibonacci number. That's it. Full there stop. you go. Yeah. 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 And like, by the way, engineering teams, I don't know if you know this, this is one of those now it's faded with agile methodologies, but like that was one of those things. So engineers are famously not willing to estimate how long things yeah. will take. So they've tried millions of ways to try to like fool the engineer brain to be like, let's just try to come up with some amount of how long this one take. And, and so there's t-shirt sizing, right? Is it a small, yeah. medium, large feature? And then there's the Fibonacci style. So they're like a one, three, five, seven, just, just to force you into like, these are made up numbers. They're just like kind of in ranges. <laughs> yeah. This the, like there's a version of this that I would love to just have like, our growth rate is a Fibonacci number. That's the only numbers we have a choice on. Like we can't, we cannot actually grow by 30%. Yeah. We have to grow by... That'd be so good. I don't remember. The, yeah. It's like all that matters is going from this Fibonacci number to the next one. Yeah. And if we don't, if we're somewhere in the middle, it doesn't matter. It's immaterial. It's just the next Fibonacci number. And then we could agree that if you were wrong by one of those orders, then you would, that would be a bigger deal. You get fired. Yeah. 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 So really it's like your risk is down at the bottom. Like when you're first getting started, when you got to be the difference between one, two, three, five, like that's when you're really, you should be nervous. But once you get to like, you know, the what, 21, yeah. 34, uh, you yeah. got a lot of wiggle room. You got a lot of wiggle room. I, I wish I knew I if anyone in the world does anything like this. I, I, I honestly don't hate part of this. <laughs> no, I think this is, here's the crazy thing. I don't think any individual in any company can make this happen without like, maybe if they had supreme persuasion skills to go back to that. But even me, I think as a CEO, like, yeah, I know the, you know, the board wants to know like the revenue down to the number, but I'm like, it doesn't matter to me either. It's like, we're still at the ground floor. We got to go from single digit to double digit. Like, uh, you know, like yeah, and I'm trying yeah. to add a zero here, not, you, you know, understand whether we, we, oh, that invoice didn't get like sent out exactly on the day. So, and I buy that precision on its own is a form of operational excellence. And so like, one could run certain kinds of companies by saying, how many digits of precision are you usually able to deliver? And that in itself mm -hmm. is a thing we're going to optimize. Probably when you're a later stage company and you're, you know, maybe PE firms work this way, right? Like, but it's not a, I, I don't think that makes me like, that doesn't get me running to my happy place. There's a, there's actually, so yeah, I, I think it's like on, on the pro side of like the Fibonacci approach of growth thing here, there's a version of that that I also think makes sense, especially for startups, for smaller, for bigger companies, mm -hmm. certainly not. But for startups where it's like, I don't know the Fibonacci numbers past 34, I guess. Like it's 50, 55 and then what, like 96 or 99, I guess? I don't know. Or no, 80, 89. Anyway, the, your job is to go from one to the next. Like nothing matters for a startup besides going from one to the next. It doesn't, it doesn't, right. It's not worth it to think about how do you go within the gap between the two of them. Like who cares? It's only worth it if it takes us from one to the next. And so I do like kind of think that that mindset is probably useful. Your point, though, I think is also a good one of like, there's a version of a data team that only reports on numbers that are the Fibonacci growth numbers that can be real sloppy. There's a version of that team that is just a disaster where it's like, how do we count our revenue? We sum the amount of everything in Salesforce. Seems yeah. right. I don't know. Close <laughs> enough. It's it's off by $8 million. But yeah, whatever. Like, okay, I, can, I can see like the idea of like, no, if we are precise about this, it's that like, Aim small, miss small kind of thing where missing small matters at some point. And yeah, I don't know if that's yeah. actually a phrase. Yeah, I think there's probably a Pareto rule here, like an 80-20, like getting the 20% remainder of precision would take way, like so much effort that it's probably not worth the, the human time. This one thing I noticed in, in smaller companies, like because we're data, you know, kind of data nerds, data obsessed, 
we want to get the data just right. And it's like frustrating, you know, like you said, oh, like you can count the deals in Salesforce, but also, well, let's say you're working on renewals, right? For your team. So you want to know, you know, you want to know three months before the one-year contract is going to renew so that your CS team can kind of start the conversations or whoever's involved, right? The account manager, right? Like you want to know that. And let's say that's not properly input into your systems, right? Mm-hmm. People have trouble living with that imprecision. It's like, well, why don't you just start a conversation? Maybe it'll be like the renewal will be like in two months, some maybe in four months, like it'll even itself out over time, right? But sometimes getting precision on that it's like organizational change. It's not just the data team that has to get better at data, right? You know, it's like, unfortunately, the data often starts crappy in the front. So it's like you're pushing all this, like the shit runs backwards. And then like you have to take it all the way to the salesperson's like, hey, you forgot to input the contract into the into the tool, right? <laughs> like the start date. Yeah. There's also like, there's, there is an element of this too where, in that sort of case, say, imagine you're the CSM, you go talk to an account, you're like, looks like your renewal's in three months, and the person pulls out a contract and is like, actually, it's in five. Then you're like, oops. And there's kind of a version of that where it's like, well, we're early, we're helping you out early, yeah. and you should be happy about it. But there definitely is some element of, seems like you can't do anything right. Like, I just don't trust you to be able to do anything anymore. And and so I, I don't know exactly, yeah. there, there's like a the one-off change, like the, back to the original question, like the one-off change is one thing. If you have to do it a bunch, like if you're issuing corrections all the time, there's like a reputational change to, yeah. which again, I don't know if that's a case for doing it where it's like, look at us, we're correcting our stuff. Or if the case for like burying all of it and being like, we haven't changed anything. We're all perfect. Hey, you don't get away with like, it. Ben, this is like a, like carbon tax, cap and trade, et cetera. Like, should I tax you for the carbon of you getting on an airplane, which is what everyone kind of wants? Or what if I did it way more hardcore? You get five flights a year. That's it. You better use your allotment. Like you better believe <laughs> all sorts of environmentalists would be like, wait, no, that's really hard to, for me to deal with. Hold on. Yeah. Can I'm I not actually... pay my way out of this? And it's like, ah, what if I make it a hard cap number of erratas per year? <laughs> it's like this number. <laughs> yeah. You, 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 but maybe that's the way to do it. We, we, we go like your number of corrections also exponentially dwindles or something. And so like, you, you, yeah, you have beginning of the year, you can make more mistakes. And like halfway through, you're like, oh, shoot. Okay, I'm going to get more careful now on my data. This is this is like the stupidest thing. But it made me think of the idea of like a data team issuing like everybody else they work with, like challenges like you have in like football, where you can only challenge it so many times. You get yeah. like three challenges a year. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. I'm yeah. sorry, as the CEO, we give you three data challenges a year. If you get two of them right, we'll get you a third, you get another one. But like, that's what you get. Like, you use them wisely. And, you know, some CEO uses it in the middle of January to be like, I'm going to issue a challenge for this website visit thing. It's like, oh, you messed up. Like that, that board meeting where our retention number is off by half. You're out of challenges. Sorry, can't help you. Yeah. It's weird how none of this is, seems possible. Like it all feels like everything you and I are saying here seems like outlandish, but it kind of shouldn't be. I think you as an April Fool's, like here's something Mode should do for, as an April, for an April Fool's. You should on all the charts for that day, reduce the resolution down to like you can you can only see up to this degree of significance and like listen it's all just trend lines overall yeah you're, you're squinting at it and like literally look at the chart and kind of squint at it and try to draw a trend line through it like we just did it for you yeah i mean like, and then go like really you need to zoom in like really do you really need to know like what what are you going to do with this information <laughs> like there should be a like okay tell me why you need it like it's a coin operator it's like to get the precise number, you got to pay extra today. And like, do you really want to use this information? Like, what are you going to do differently if you find out it was 20,311 versus, you know, 412? Like, There's a whole series of this that's like the adversarial data team to me, where it's like, 
all right, you, you only get a certain number of challenges. Every chart's basically just a trend line because that's what you're going to do with any. Like, you're going to stick the thing to Excel. You're going to draw a trend line through it. And you're like, it's positive. Or you can't make scatter plots. You can only make trend lines. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, there's, there's like all your numbers are just rounded to Fibonacci numbers. <laughs> there's, a, there's another version that's just like, just, just, I wonder what it would actually be like. There's all this like, oh, we have to be partners with business people and stuff like that. Sure. What if you actually just took a much more adversarial stance? Like, I, I don't actually know what would happen there, but your job, you didn't see your job as actually being like to be, how do I help you at all costs? It's much more of like, actually, I'm going to kind of challenge you a little bit more on these things in an adversarial way. Like, I don't actually know that that's all bad. Like, obviously it's, you know, going to get you fired. Ben, I actually, no, 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 I, I don't, I think it'll get you fired. That, that answer is like, because you think of the data team as generally weak, right? But engineers do this all the time, like all the time. Like, do you really need that feature? Why? Like, I don't think that feature is useful. Like mm. they push back on their PMs and then PMs push back on the business requirements people all the time. And, and you know, like the Valley even has like, it's permeated with like the Apple kind of Facebook, like we know better than our users anyway, right? Like, you know, the, because of the data or because of, you know, our intuition. But this is what I think is the hallmark difference between product teams and let's say IT teams is like IT kind of just is like, well, we've got these millions of asks. We just got to somehow try to deliver. And then we say no to some things because we have no time. Product teams mm -hmm. are like, no, we, we, we have a vision for where this is going. And like, you know, every time there's a request that's like not in my existing worldview, you're like, do you really need that? Like, can't I just give you this half thing? I, I don't know. Most engineers I know definitely think this way and it, it allows them to ship, you know, more things more effectively, et cetera. And data teams could work that way. There's, there's actually two things. Yeah, there's two things that actually is interesting. I've, I've thought of one, you know, this is a point that you've never mentioned. I've never thought of before, which is one, Data teams, and really everybody except for product. Product is the only group that I think really gets this leeway. Ship to vision. Whereas everything else like ships to need. It's mm -hmm. it's like there's a lot of, of, okay, well, this is what people want. We have less of a vision about where it's going. Instead, we're just like going to kind of take a bunch of requests. And yeah, we may say no. We may end up like declining to do things. But like that's really the, the reason we say no is because we are, we are busy. Yeah, yeah it's, we are full of things to do already, not because that does not fit our vision for the thing that you need. And so there might be like some some case we made of like data teams shipping more division or, you know, I don't know. There's like this whole data as a product thing, which I, I like honestly struggle a little bit with, with what it means. It's one of those things that I think has become a little catchphrasey. But there's a version of that to me where it's like, OK, yeah, ship, ship build to a vision. And when people ask for something outside of that vision, you are allowed to say no to that. There's another part of this, too, which is the part that I, I've been thinking about a little bit more recently, which is data teams also... Like production is everywhere. And I don't think there's that much respect for this of everything that you ship is in effect production. Like in, in a data org, you can ship an answer in 15 minutes. You can get a question and ship an answer in 15 minutes. And that, that answer is production indefinitely. Like you can build some processes around, okay, this thing, don't trust it for that long or whatever. But like if somebody has a dashboard, their assumption is it's right until they're told otherwise. And like, Product also does not do this. Product also is like, we won't build it because, yeah, okay, maybe we could hack together a hack day version of it in 15 minutes or in two days, but like, it will never continue to work. We can't support it. It doesn't, it's an appendage to everything else. Like there is all, which is kind of tied to this vision thing, but there's, there's this like respect for the fact that the things that you ship aren't just things you have to build, they're things you have to maintain. And like, yeah. I think data teams have some of that sense in like the kind of core self-serve path, but the people consuming it 
don't think that way. The people consuming it are like, oh, I have a report. It's got a refresh button. When I push that in a year, I bet it's right. Like, and it's probably not. And and you have to, I don't know, there's a version of this where it's like, I think you could move much faster if you had easy ways to basically say, this is a one-off thing. It expires in a week or expires like the moment I hand it to you. It's a used car. You're driving off a lot. It's worth nothing the day it comes off the lot. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's it. Take your answer and don't expect it to ever work again. Yeah. I think, you know, when you, there's a difference between walking into a, a, a clothing store where like, here's the 20 jeans that we offer and like try them on, see which one you can wear and complain if you don't like them and walk out versus a tailor where you've basically, you have a machine, a person that will take your order and do whatever you want. And then you'll never be, you might be perfectly satisfied. Mm-hmm. You might not be because it's like, it never quite meets your desires. And I think external customers, broadly speaking, treat 99.9% of software as it's the gap store and there's here are the jeans and I can complain and I can ask for more, but like it's built into the way you interact with software, but inside a company, which is data is just software is shipped inside the company. It's a tailor, right? And so it's everyone who comes in is asking for it tailored exactly for them. And they have no, you don't think about your tailor as having to make trade-offs with other customers. Like you don't think about that. That's not, that doesn't enter into your like, well, listen, I can only make sleeves this way because I have 12 other customers that want sleeves. Like, no, like you said you're a tailor. <laughs> I just want it the way I want it. And, and yeah. teams are in the middle of like, a, what does the sales team think about what the finance, like they don't care. Like that's not, it's not their problem. Yeah. There, and there's, there's actually, there's another thing about the product stuff. It's true. It's like, you do get, Customers, you go by a software. Yeah, okay. You complain about it. You want a different thing. But like people kind of like, well, the solution is like it might have to work around it. Like it doesn't do what I wanted to do. Okay. I'm not going to write any, I mean, I'll sometimes write an email and complain about yeah, it. People yeah. I make feature requests. But like for the most part, it's like I am understanding that I'm buying the thing as it exists and that's what I get. But but there is like a data. Especially Ben, it's, especially it's just, because this, for 30 years, we didn't even have SaaS, right? Like, so for 30 years, we got accustomed to like, you got it on a disc. Like, it really couldn't change. <laughs> like, yeah, SaaS is relatively like, young still. This, this, if you're an internal team asking for data, a lot of times like, this isn't exactly what I want. Can I have it exactly what I want? Yeah. And, and it's harder to basically be like, no, that's not what we sold. Like, we don't have that product available. I'm sorry. Like, I can't, you know, put a chicken sandwich on a Big Mac bun for you. That's not on the menu. The menu is the menu. You go buy off the menu. Maybe, maybe it's a, you know, you said it's like a number of challenges. Maybe, maybe the whole data team should operate on a credit system. You're like, you already got the snowflake credits and your five turn credits and all these credits. So maybe you go like sales team, marketing team, data, uh, like finance team, you all get credits. The credits are basically in terms of like end user numbers that you get to like receive that are for you. And you're like, Every time you make me change the dashboard and it wasn't because of an error, you got it. You spend your credits. Like, yeah, there's like, you get a certain amount of like things you can buy. Like here, this is the store. You can, you have, we have a bunch of things off the shelf that are for free, but if you want to buy something custom, like it costs you money and sorry, that's what we're going to have to. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, (laughs) it's true. The sad part is it's because it's true, right? Like no one thinks about their colleagues time as like a dollar amount and like a constraint. Like no one Real, until you have a colleague who gets a little wiser, who like pushes back on you, like, hey, like, I have other things, like, you're not the most important thing in, in my priority stack. People just assume their coworkers are just generally like available to do stuff. There's another way of like framing that essentially, which is, is it's 
it's like market based. It's just like it is the capital trade thing. It's essentially like, okay, how bad do you want it? Like, yeah, th- there's this whole need of like, what's the urgency or whatever. Everyone's like, it's very urgent, but it's actually like, no, okay, you get a certain number of credits. If you really yes. want it, pay for it. I love it. Like, like it costs honestly- me time. I, I actually kind of wonder where you could go with that of like the the sort of market based economy for data asks, which is like yeah. everybody gets a certain number of credits. You want to buy something. We can decide how much to cost. Like we basically can cost it out. Like I mean, you could even I have a, can, in a very healthy company. You could have a bid. Like it could be a bid. <laughs> like you could have an auction <laughs> going on for my time. I mean, of course, it's dysfunctional in some ways. Don't get me wrong. But this is, you know, this is the adversarial data team. I actually kind I of do, again, like, like it. Yeah, it's adversarial, but it makes evident something that everyone should know, which is like your your downstream colleagues, especially the ones below you that are like these platformy parts of your company, right? Whether that's, you know, accounts payable, like there you go. Everyone depends on accounts payable, right? Like you're buying something for this next conference. You need some swag. Like, you know, technically there you go. That's like all routes lead down to like the finance team that needs to like send, you know, take care of paying for stuff. Those, all these teams that sit below everyone else, like no one really understands their cost until the trains slow down. And then they're like, wait, why are the trains slowing down? And I actually think a market is, yes, I think dangerous and bad in terms of company culture, but would do wonders to externalize to the company, to everyone else in the company. Like what you want is not free. Nothing is free. Even if I'm, have a salary and I'm paid and I'm, you know, it's just, it's not. Yeah, like there's a, I kind of like this this general idea of like, look, what what this whole thing is, is trying to express the reality of a thing that you all sort of know, but but typically we sort of discard. And and again, to some extent, it's putting a price on something we recognize that there is a price of, but like often don't really feel or see. Mm-hmm. Uh, or or to your point about like fuzzing numbers, it's like that's what you're going to do with it anyway. All we're doing is like taking the thing that we know is going to happen and just like kind of shortcutting you to the end of it in a way that like sort of makes the whole thing a little bit more real or sort of makes it where it's like, okay, maybe that exact thing doesn't work, but it starts to expose a little bit of like how this actually works in practice that I think kind of tells an interesting story of like, actually, yes, this stuff is expensive and we do have to make decisions and you can't just say it's all important. We pile in the queue. You got to pay for it. How much does it cost? Like what, what's it worth to you? You know? <laughs> yeah. You have a, a menu of different types of haircuts. Uh, you've got a live aside, auction every, every day, aside. the five people come. <laughs> To, to bid what you can do that day? Like, sorry, that's how it's going to go. Who do you think, excluding if we exclude CEO as having credits, who do you think would always win in terms of like, I can outspend you for the data? The data? Like, assuming you didn't limit the poker, you know, the, the, the ante at the table or whatever. <laughs> Let's say, yeah, which business unit would be like, I don't care what the product team wants for data. I, say, like, finance team will just be like, I'll outspend you. I will outspend you to get my data first. <laughs> <laughs> There's... Yeah, there's like an actual data budget. Yeah, yeah. You, you want to go even further with this. You could go even further with this and say like, that's what actually pays the data team. That that actually you do have an actual dollar budget that goes into the jar every day. And like that jar is the actual salaries of the data team. And you know what? If there's not enough money in the jar, like if you want us to be able to do more stuff, put more money in the jar. I don't know what happens when you have like a bad month and nobody gets paid. There's like a kind of a problem with like collusion in the opposite direction where everybody just like bids each other down, you know, like nobody bids. Totally, you know, totally. like, oh God, this costs $8 for this thing. But, but you know, there's a version of this where it's like, actually, okay, you want the thing, pay for it. Yeah. Yeah. And then the finance team is like, actually, we're just not writing any checks except for our own. Sorry, we get our things. 
I love the idea that there's somewhere listening. There's like a marketing attribution guru out there who's like, now I can apply all these attribution problems to inside the company's data. Great, yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about data, data attribution. Just internal, <laughs> who, who should get paid what based on who is like delivering <laughs> data points to the highest bidder. Did data teams oh, so running internal ads? Yeah, yeah. Did you? Yeah, like that's what you really want, right? You, you want a data team to be like, yo, we got stuff to offer. Like you, you, you should check out our latest offerings, our latest products. Yeah, it's just, it's just there's like scheduled posts to Slack that are like ads for like, we've got a new discount for a new dashboard. It's half price for the next twelve hours. <laughs> We're reaching the end of the quarter. You know, we got some free slots. Like. Yeah, it's because they're all going to go away. Like, the, we get annual planning. It's expensive right now. I'm going to get it before that starts. You know, have your have your Labor Day sales. I feel like the there's a perennial problem that also gets talked about, you know, over and over and over again. Like, I, I don't think, I don't know if I have anything new to offer to it, which is, you know, central data team versus federated data team versus like the marketing team has its own analysts. And, and the reason these things happen is this breaks down, right? Like there's always a breakdown of like, I want something that I can't get in the speed that I want. So I will hire myself someone. And, and then the version of like, I'll pay for the headcount for you to hire someone is like the level, the, you know, the slightly better version of that. Cause it's like, you should put all these people in the same org. But if you really want to behave like a product team, like it, it's almost like you have to have this, you have to be able to you have to be willing to make some of the stakeholders unhappy at certain points in time. Like you just, the ability the, to make everyone happy is not, not tenable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and there's, I mean, there's like, this is like, there are, there are to me two categories of, they sometimes are the same person, but two categories of like data person. Often there's the type of person who, who revels in the saying, who is like kind of the engineering type of like, ah, I'm not going to do it. Tell me why, tell me why, here's why you're wrong. Stuff like that. And then there's the type of person I think who is very much like I am, I am born to help other people. Like I just, I really, somebody asked me a question, like it, it eats at me if I can't help them. And, and yeah, I think there's like, the former has all sorts of problems in one direction. The latter has all sorts of problems in the other. And it's like, almost like, is there, is there a system that makes it a little easier? Where it's like, it's not, it's not me that's saying, no, it's, it's the system. I'm sorry. It costs what it costs. No matter how much yeah. I want to help you, I can't give you a McFlurry for free. Ah. <laughs> this is, by the way, like maybe, Maybe the other way you can frame it is like who classic managerial technique, right? Especially from, I found older managers that they start applying like child rearing techniques to management. So it's like, you want, you, you can't have dessert until you have your broccoli, right? Like all these mm. kinds of things. It's like, ah, you want this thing for your dashboard, but like, can't have that unless we first, you let me buy this, you know, thing that we need to, 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 to manage the data pipelines. Like, ah, that's, that's yeah, just the you, pill you've you got to go log these events a little bit better. Yeah. Then we'll give you the dashboard. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Know, so it's like, log the events. And so the, the, maybe it's like, that's, that could also be the currency, right? It's like how much it's not like actual dollars. It's, it's almost like a barter economy of, of like, have you helped the data team so that it can help you? <laughs> and then you can spread the, spread the pain around this, the company. This, yeah. This, this opens the door for all sorts of like interesting angles for corruption, which I'm also very interested in of like, you know, ways that, ways that people start to cheat the system and being like, Oh, you know, you're, you're, we are, we are a corrupt data team now that actually gives certain people favors for discounts. And like, there's some yeah. kickbacks where yeah we'll, we'll build these dashboards for people because they're going to help us, you know, like, do something else. Who are we kidding? Right? Like even the most, pure good 
group of humans who works in a company above a certain size, this kind of stuff will occur. Like you have friends, you have people you like more in the company. And when that person comes by your desk and like they gave you chocolates last week because of whatever. And like, you're like, yeah, let me, let me show you this thing. Like I got you. Like this will happen, right? Like no one is pure and perfect. This is, this is getting like real off the rails, but I, I am sure People do. There's like, you know, people who bury themselves and like in Harvard Business School doing all these sort of like organizational theory mm. things that, you know, love to pontificate about this stuff. Has, I'm sure somebody has, has come up with the like the market based organizational structure where it's like if, if markets are supposed to be the thing that makes like, you know, the economy efficient and how we interact with like each other on a broader scale efficient does that work like inside of a big company? Like, could a big company basically just be a market? Like, why why would that actually not? I'm sure there's all sorts of reasons why that doesn't work because it's probably too small. But like in some level, why do we think of like, oh, inside of a company, we all have to be a part of the same team where we all just have like these grandiose ideas where we work together and, and everything is this sort of like it's all communist for sort of lack of a yeah, better term. I mean, but th that is how the U S works so at, at the largest scales. We think it's decentralized capitalism as works. And at the smallest scales, including all the way down to your family, like we totally believe in like hardcore communism, right? Like, so, so, yeah. like, so if you're, if you're Microsoft, which is like, you know, somewhere in the middle, it's, it's bigger than a lot of cities. What if you just were like, no, actually this whole thing is a big economy. You want something done, you pay for it. I, I actually think it's not how bad. Does that go? I don't think it's, it's as bad as you think. I think, there's two problems. Well, one, I'll give you examples of where it is applied. And I, I'll give you a fun little anecdote from my time at Microsoft. Yeah, so you've been there. You know what that's yep. like. The, they did implement something like this, which is very common at companies, but for the opposite reason. So the, one of the fun stories that emerged while I was there, right when I started, and I was like, wait, what, what just happened? There was a fraud had occurred amongst a bunch of employees. Obviously, huge company. People people commit fraud. <laughs> that's, that's a a a strong use of passive voice. Is fraud? <laughs> I'll, I'll 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 explain. I'll explain. So basically, here's what you could do, right? So Microsoft made all this software, and we as employees, one of the perks is you could buy the software at at mm. cost, right? Which is basically near zero dollars. <laughs> Which is yeah, a quarter of a cent. Right, <laughs> and so you could go to the 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 kind of effectively the store, the the and say I want a copy, and you could buy anything. Like so, ninety nine percent of people are just buying like Windows, right, for their home. Was th was this when it was like CDs? Yeah, this is when it was CDs. Okay, I know, I know, I'm dating myself, but you could also buy like Microsoft SQL Server, which costs like ten grand, <laughs> but you could buy it for ten bucks, like, which is fine. What are you going to do with that? Who cares? Did, so, did SQL Server cost more than Word, even though both of them were just CDs? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. But 100%. at cost, why? Because you don't charge software based on cost? Like, what are you talking about? Oh, you but, mean uh, as an employee? Saying, yeah. Oh, no, yeah, no, they were effectively the same. Yeah, yeah, they were effectively, okay, okay. they were effectively, yeah, sorry, I thought you meant like yeah, publicly. Okay. Oh, no, as, yeah, I mean, obviously, yeah. <laughs> no, no, yeah, they, they were effectively the same cost. So this group of employees was running a little kind of, game of like buying these SQL server licenses for, you know, the $10 or whatever it was and, and then selling them, you know, kind of on eBay or wherever for like a massive profit. And they were doing this a lot, but it was unnoticed because the numbers were so small. Right. Mm -hmm. So like, even if you bought like a thousand of these, like across three, there was like, there were three executive assistants and one manager who were like running a ring of like 
of sending the approvals <laughs> in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a in a round robin fashion, so to speak. And and so it never surfaced in the numbers, right? Like it just it's like a rounding error on a rounding error on a rounding error of like the budget of those com- like it's what, what one problem with Fibonacci accounting is it makes fraud really easy. <laughs> Right. This is the that one. Yeah. So, so this is we're going to come to a, a, an aha moment, you and me here. So, so, so the only reason this came out, like, and the FBI got involved, is like, of course, as all criminals, like, they started bragging in the, you know, the guy was starting to post his yacht on the internet or whatever, and it's like, ah, something's fishy here, and so it got caught as a full, you know, fraud ring. Like, I think the the leader of it even did like a little bit of, you know, like a little bit of jail time, light but, jail time, you know, yeah, light jail time. But here's, so the reason I know this whole story was it happened around the time when I started and they then had to change the internal accounting so that when you wanted to buy any of these products, even though it cost the company the 10 bucks or five bucks or whatever it was, you had to put it in the books at the public price of like 10 grand so that you couldn't effectively hide this, this activity. So they did, I don't even know what the accounting team did to manage it. Because at the end of the day, it's not like $10,000 was exiting the coffers of the company. So I don't understand how they did it. But my point is, you you do have to pay for your software inside Microsoft, even though you're buying from Microsoft. That's that's what I was trying to get at, right? And it solves these fraud problems, but it also solves like, what is the rough cost of running your PL, right? Like, oh, you do require Word and Excel and SQL. And like, you know, it allows you to kind of see that cost. So I think companies do do it for software. They do it for certain things like that, where certain costs are attributed to different teams based on how they're using things. Mm -hmm. And I don't just mean like the Marketo license belongs to the Marketo team. I'm saying like more broadly, like things that are shared. But I don't think they do it all the way to what your point of like the data team is effectively on auction and like people can kind of create a market for how much it should get funded. Buy their way to it. Yeah. And I like this, that, 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 that sounds vague. I remember there some vague thing about that when when Yammer got bought by Microsoft. They worked for a company got bought by Microsoft. They had like a store you could go. That's to right, Ben. You, you also buy, worked at Microsoft. I did. Yeah. <laughs> you could buy like the Microsoft store had a bunch of stuff, and you could buy it like at a discount. But I do remember there being some kind of strange accounting around it, where like it wasn't. It was like, oh, you can go buy Xbox games for pretty cheap. Yeah. But it wasn't that cheap, and and it was they they had something else about like certain you could get like more enterprisey products and stuff like that but i don't remember what it was but it was probably something like this where it was like okay yeah totally. you can't actually just go out and totally. buy something crazy and they solved it at the consumer level of the, the average employee they solved it by just limiting your number right this is like yeah. the same way all the all you can eat products like class pass or whatever you you know this they all start with like unlimited sessions at the gym and then you're like this doesn't economically work so you either make them not unlimited or you change the definition of unlimited to mean Unlimited up to five. <laughs> class, right? like, class, pass is, class pass is a product I would love for somebody to like do some. I, I know a little bit about the internals of that. I like know some people who work there. And just like the, it's unlimited to this credit system to like, or it was unlimited to like a certain number of classes a month to like a credit right. system where like, you know, SoulCycle costs like a thousand credits and, you know, random yoga studio and, you know, some mountain town in California costs too. But there was a whole bunch of like kind of interesting stuff. And also about like how the studios actually some cases did really well because they would just fill empty spots with it. It was supposed to be like a movie pass type of deal. Mm-hmm, but in mm-hmm. practice, what it ended up being is just like these studios were burning money like crazy trying to support class pass people that didn't actually ever pay anything. And yeah. I don't know, there's, there's a lot of interesting things in that world. I don't actually know. I guess class pass nail is basically just like 
a sort of single subscription service to a bunch of places that you can pay by ad hoc classes for through one platform. It's essentially like a, yeah. a I think in the platform. End, the unlimited part of it, I think, is mostly gone, right? Or it's there in name only. I can't, can you name, by the way, those are all probably really good places for data people to work because anyone that pitches this unlimited stuff, you really almost certainly have to create a data model that gives you information asymmetry over your customers. So you can, it's like airline points, et cetera, right? Like you have yeah. to be able to make it seem more valuable than it is because otherwise where's the market, right? Yeah. It's, you know, the all you can eat things at various places yeah. where it's like, okay, this is $40 for most people to eat $20 worth of food. Every once in a while, fine. Somebody comes in and you know, what's that? The man versus food guy comes in from, yeah, that's you like know, a spam bot. That's no different yeah. than like you sign up for an email marketing tool that says, oh, you can have this many users and you can send as many emails as you want. It's like in the fine print somewhere in there, it says up to some weird number where we will deem you like overloading our servers, right? Even yeah. though, because they're doing the analysis of like, well, if you have a million users, you're going to send a hundred emails a month, like per user, right? Because how many emails can you possibly send to every single user, right? So eh, a million users, all you can eat email. Right. But then again, for sure in the fine yeah, print, but there's, something. Yeah, there's something where it's like, you would have sent a thousand emails a second. Good luck. Yeah. 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 By the way, do you think all you can eat restaurants have good data? <laughs> do you think to operate one, you need good, good data? Like, it's actually kind of an interesting question. Like what, like, so, okay. Golden Corral. So Golden Corral is, is like one of these big buffets, right? They have okay. an all you can eat thing. So I, I grew up in the South. I'm familiar with some of these, some of these establishments. There was a Quincy's in my hometown, which was like a buffet place, but it was not all you can eat. And then they opened a Golden Corral. And Golden Corral was notable for two things. One, it was all you can eat. And two, they had steak. And so it was like, oh my God, it's all you can eat steak. This is, you know, where the kings eat. It was kind of a lot. I don't remember what it was. It was probably like, it was probably like 20 bucks, but I, it's a big enough place that was like, you know, it's like a national chain that I'm sure they have some amount of information on this. They've thought this through, like, how do you actually support this? But that's actually kind of an interesting problem of like, what are you? Golden Corral. I'm, you made me go on LinkedIn. Golden Corral is a massive corporation. Oh, I'm sure it's huge. I had no idea. And they absolutely have, at least at minimum, a senior IT manager of data strategies. So <laughs> I want to talk to this. This is, this is, you shouldn't have me on this thing. Get that person on this thing. Yeah, no, we're, like, that's, we're a, that's a way more interesting question. <laughs> like, so golden corral is a huge, so you're saying, and all you can eat is a core part of their, their brand. That was the, the I mean, it was then. So, so this was, I mean, this was, when I was this was like in high school, but, but it, I remember when it opened and it was like, okay, they have, yeah, all you can eat. There, there are different, like, buffets have all these different sort of options where it's like, okay, this buffet is all you can eat for this. This buffet is this, you know. But they had a steak one. And they may have had a steak and lobster one. It was all you can eat steak and lobster. Wow. The, it was probably 20 to 30 bucks at the time, which would have been 20 years ago. But that was that was the whole thing was it's like all you can eat and not all you can eat macaroni salad or, like, croutons. It's all you can eat, like, steak. And I'm sure they made a killing. And I'm sure every once in a while they got killed by somebody who came in there and ate a thousand dollars worth of lobster in one sitting. But like somebody did a bunch of math there that probably made sense. I don't know. Golden Corral is, is, is Golden Corral. Right? Store. Because like restaurants can have very high margins. I mean, although these, these, these large scale ones obviously do really good, have good economics generally, right? Once you franchise, like it gets pretty good, but you gotta have the, you, you gotta be able to set prices. Maybe this is the thing like that. You want to create markets, like you want to use these techniques, whether it's inside your company or outside, if you need to create adequate prices, like the, the need to set up a, to create a price for your, for your all you can eat 
forces you into all the like you work backwards from that into like we must have really good data because otherwise we're not going to price correctly mm. unless you want to have 80 percent margins in food which i think is unlikely <laughs> so, yeah, i don't know the, the quality of steak questionable <laughs> yeah yeah and so you have to you would need to invest in really good data so the that might give us a, a grand unified theory of like if you'd want to put a price on internal data needs it would mean it's because it's there's a significant mismatch in in kind of the the buyer and the seller in terms of what the, the costs are and so like you'd force you'd probably man you'd probably end up having a much more operationally efficient data team because you'd have to constantly be able to justify that price and work under that price that, that and that's that yeah that's an interesting point too of like what is the there there is a huge information asymmetry there where like most people don't know how long it takes to do something and i don't know if you could use that like if you were trying to do this i don't know if you'd use that in a way to be like okay we're going to price certain things in in particular ways like you couldn't just price everything super high you'd have to like figure out prices that sort of work but like to what extent would that that information asymmetry give you like some pricing advantage versus do you do exactly what you're saying well eventually actually you can't really do that because then people will buy the cheap thing that takes you way too long and like mm -hmm. you actually mm -hmm. do want to sell more of the cheaper things and and you end up actually like pricing this more or less correctly where you honestly also probably price in a little bit of pain. You're like, I actually hate this task. I'm going to price it a little bit higher just because I don't want to do it. Why not? Like, yeah. You know, I, <laughs> if you can get away yeah. with it. Yeah. I think the problem with these pricing things is there, you have no competition inside a company. You are the only provider of that service. Unless, <laughs> so, unless, so, unless the marketing team's like, wait a second, I can start my own no, no. team at these prices. <laughs> It's not just an adversarial data team. It's adversarial with on in the data team. So every analyst has their own price. Oh, now you're talking. Yes. Yes. Because that yes. way also like personal preferences get baked in even yes. more. And you're like, all right, who's, you know, so you go to your bidding thing every day and somebody needs a dashboard and both there's people bidding to, to buy one and people yeah. bidding to sell one. Now and every day, you just, yes. this now is how you, you do it. Ask spread. Now you, it's perfect. Now, now it's perfect. We've got it. <laughs> that is fully adversarial, like, Nobody is really a friend. Everyone is just a customer and a competitor. Yeah. yeah. It's like, you know, you're over here trying to undercut your teammate to be like, I that task seems real easy. I'm going to try to get it at a cheap price or a higher, you know, this, this, I, mean, I like this. This is the crazy kind of thing. Like data in most companies, right? Buy, buy, like I think you and I, you can probably confirm this for me. Like virtually no company has data as anything but a cost center, right? Like, like I, I, I'd be amazed if anyone codes it as profit like it's, it's it's some kind of yeah. cost it's, yeah. and, and uh, like you put it maybe in r d if you're nice but it's like at the end of the day uh, a cost center and where do, where do y'all put data by the way i assume it's like gna i think it's I GNA. Believe we put census, yeah. we put ours in gna yeah okay. it's gna and i mean by the way it can get flimsy right like at spotify i could i'd probably put it in r d because like the recommendations end up in the product and so on and so forth right so i i think it's be reasonable there to put data into r d depending on the percentage that is like reporting to wall street and the percentage that is like making product ml yeah. features but if it's a cost center this system should do an amazing job of of creating really good prices like lower prices in the grand scheme of things it actually encourages you to hire more data people because <laughs> then you're like, let me try <laughs> aggregate prices down. And then I just got to figure out who's the most expensive data person, get that person out and like keep my overall data team. That's true. There's, there's another part, another part of this actually, which is the good people get better prices. Like the, the people who are really good, known to be good could actually demand, oh, this dashboard is $10 from analyst A, but it's 15 from analyst B. But I really like analyst B, so I'm going to pay them for that. Like you end up actually having some like performance stuff tied into it too. It's, 
you know, again, rife for well, corruption, but still, well, like there is an element. Another way, like, let's say it's 10 bucks no matter what. Let's say the bid for the dashboard is 10 bucks, but one data person is just more efficient than the other. They will just get better margins on that dashboard. <laughs> and so one person will be like, I don't know how to deliver that dashboard for 10 bucks. So I can't yes. take that job. But the other yeah, one's like, I can, I can deliver that dashboard for five bucks on my, on my side. Like, I got it. I got it. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the question then is like, what is, what is the money? How, how, does the, how does the money actually work? Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. You're right now. We need to build an internal yeah, economy. Like, what are you actually some, trading? You know, I guess this is where like Bitcoin's come in. You got some, some nonsense crypto thing. I, but by the way, like if you do this, what you would reveal is the consumers of the data would also f- be forced to reveal certain things. Like what is in the bid, right? What is in the bid? Is the bid a dashboard? Is it the format? Is it the number? Is mm. it the timeline, right? You had a whole thing in your like post the other day, like about SLAs, right? Mm-hmm. And there's so much emphasis in our, in the scene on SLAs, right? Every data observability company and like you name it, right? Like everyone in the bottom up, like data, modern data stacks talking about data SLAs 24 seven, but most consuming, like most companies out in the wild are not defining SLAs that well, right? I think t- you, you tell me if I'm wrong, if you flip a coin and pick a random mode customer, how much is the end consumer of, of the data able to even define their SLA? Like, do they even know? Apart from, I need it for the meeting. <laughs> mm-hmm. do, they, do they know the, like, how fresh, like, what do you, you had to think about latency of the data, right? What is the requirement on the latency of the data? Like, yeah. who, who's, who, does anyone even state that? And if you created a price, if you created a bidding model, you would have to clarify. It basically forces you to spec what your needs are. Yeah, and 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 the other the other thing too that uh, solves some of the problems that I was talking about before. We're like, how long do you need this? Like, yeah. can I get rid of it the day I ship it? Okay, that's going to be way cheaper than it's like this is an ongoing dashboard that I expect to be right for the next three years. I'm like, well, that's going to cost you a lot because like yeah. you're coming back to me and like now now I'm selling the subscription service. Now I'm having to charge you like an annual and monthly subscription for maintaining this thing. This isn't just a one time fee, like. There's something and, like it's and a whole we both know like things. the cost of a 24-hour latency dashboard versus a one-hour latency dashboard is could be dramatic, right? Yeah. Because working backwards, to your point, what I loved is like you should define the SLA at the end and then work backwards <laughs> to like the source. And and that price forces you into defining those things. And, and I think that might be the biggest benefit relative to all the int- intrinsic competition that would that, yeah. arise. That's actually kind of, it's like, yeah, you've got you've to basically place your order because otherwise, rather than being like, oh, this is some obnoxious like request form that I'll fill out because you make me and like, it's fine. But really, I'm just going to send a DM to some analyst and be like, hey, can you help me do this? Like, I don't want to fill out that form. Basically, the analyst is like, look, I, I only work when I get paid, you know, and I can't tell you what to charge you for this unless you tell me what you want. And so you got to tell me all these details. Otherwise, you know, Good luck on your your auction tomorrow morning. Yeah, yeah. I mean, put it. Yeah, you 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 can do all this thing. You can be like, listen, I, if you're willing to do this work now, like you can, we, I can avoid putting it on the public uh, on the public bid. But like, <laughs> if not, you, know, you can just see. Yeah, and keep these off market. I think I remember talking to one of these let's call it crypto people, and they had worked in banking, and and the few times when I'm like, okay, I can see some some beauty in those worlds is is this is that price. The act of creating a price is the act of revealing information and creating information, right? Like for you and I to price something, it really means we have to exchange information. If only, if only the relative value is something to us, right? And so I think if that is missing, I think if data teams are unable to prioritize and understand 
the the details of of their data requests, then something like this would be valuable. And it rewinds all the way to what you said at the beginning, like errors, right? So so errors are going to happen, mistakes are going to happen, obviously. But if we were to convince, like, do you need the data at this resolution with this confidence interval, then that can be priced, right? You still will make mistakes, like, obviously. Like, there's no getting around, like, you can have the most perfect data model, the SQL query could be perfect. But if the if a salesperson somehow like a, a contract slipped and didn't go into the ARR calculation because it didn't go into the data, it wasn't the analyst at fault here, right? Like, you know, it's just things can slip. Yeah, it's just, just going to happen. It's going to happen. Or as you said, or, or as you said, like some, you just you actually change the way you do. Like you just need to restate something because you made a decision. Like the old way isn't right anymore. Like the way that we define the threshold for something is no longer the same. Like, actually, we no longer want to report nonprofits as customers because we have decided that that's actually not accurate. We think report nonprofits that pay us zero dollars is not customers because we've yep. made a decision that that's actually the better way to support what we need in the business. Okay, well, things are different now. Like, it was wrong, kind of. Like, we changed it because we wanted to and because we made a conscious decision to do it. But, like, the old stuff is wrong. By the way, we didn't agree on this. Like, so when you do that, let's mm -hmm. see if we can create a nomenclature. So let's, let's call that one category where the business decides that there is a semantic change mm. in in meaning. So customers used to mean free and paid, and we decided to re redefine for whatever reason, right? To now just mean paid. How, 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 as an aside, how do y'all define that actually at, at census? Paid, only paid. ARR, so customers is ARR more than zero. Correct. Okay, same Correct. Case. Yeah. Now it's weird because emotionally, I don't think of the ones who are zero that any different. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's like my support team doesn't treat them differently, yeah. right? Like that. So yeah, yeah. It's it's an but unfortunate like, like, like a board customer count does not include. Yeah. Yep. 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 And like I think that's a reasonable. Then then you can put all sorts of customer acquisition kind of framing on it. And and the question then becomes like, we're not so freemium that you would really go through this because where I think in a big freemium business definitely you would want to model it that way and treat free as basically part of your marketing funnel rather than part of your product. Mm. But but that's getting so okay. So let's say you re redefine this. So and let's say there were like what. Instead of just one, there's probably like five different places in your various mode dashboards where this is showing up. On that day, when that directive comes down and you change the dashboard, and this doesn't, this, there's no underlying data complexity problems here, right? So it's just like, it's just, you just change ARR the equals, equals, greater, greater than or equals to zero versus ARR equals zero. Greater yeah, than yeah. Zero. yeah, basically. Yeah. Do you change, like, so there's, what is it, a few options, right? One is you just make the change and all dashboards are recomputed from the past all the way to today. Another is you you make some kind of you you fork the dashboards themselves and say there's the pre 2022 dashboards mm -hmm. and there's the 22 yeah. and beyond dashboards or you can try to hold previous uh, you could try to merge these concepts right of like make the dashboard go like here's where we changed and so there's like a step function change in the dashboard but it shows you yeah, like the interpretation if, if custom like yeah like if greater than August whatever then ARR has to be greater than zero. Otherwise, it doesn't. Yeah. And you have some like right. weird complexity in your customer account. Do you think you give a straight answer to that? Like, what is the right way to deal with this change? I think the way that we would do that is we just we just change history. I think we'd I think just so be like, eh, all right, the customers are now what it was. We probably make a note of it, though not really. Like, it's not going to be on a dashboard. Like, there's not going to be. Yeah. And part of this is just like, there's no good way to do it. Like maybe mode should have this, but it's kind of a weird enough thing that I'm like, here's the footnote thing. Like as much as I appreciate a good footnote, we're not going to add footnotes to mode reports for that. That's kind of an interesting thought, but for yeah, it just becomes corrections. Just, yeah. I think, I think but, what you do is what 90% of people would do, right? Yeah. You change, especially the younger, the company, like who cares about the past? It's not like we reported it to wall street or whatever. Right. So it's like, 
let's just quick move quickly and, and keep going. And to your point, like that shift is you're just, then you have the informational, like kind of organizational knowledge to disseminate. Like everyone now needs to remember that that's the new way to compute customers, right? So yeah, that permeates. You just, you just tell people, you're just like, okay, this was, by the way, we changed it. And that's, that's an easy one because sure. you're like, not our fault. Like I'm not, no, nobody's taking me. We just made yeah. a decision. Great, we do Correct. this. But, but I do think like, Agreed, that's not an error. Yeah, but it, but it is one of those things that will, that haunts you in that there will be some board deck from six months ago that gets resurfaced where you look oh. at the number of customers you're like, wait, this doesn't seem to match. Why does it not match? Oh, right. I don't remember. Could remember. Like, remember. It'll be a new remember, person. You might like, know the new rule, but you won't remember when the, the rule changed. Yeah. yeah. You yeah. won't know when the rule had changed. Right? You won't remember that. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I guess you just sort of live with the fact that like, yeah, history is going to evolve a little bit. Like, yeah, don't, the old board deck was the number that was the relevant number at the time. We believe it was correct then for reasons it's no longer correct. Don't ask us why, we don't know. <laughs> By the way, I think if I were in charge of, let's call it something like mode, I could imagine a universe where as a feature, like as probably paid feature, on a reasonable basis, yearly, quarterly, like you snapshot and archive the the the, the states, not the underlying computations, just, just the numbers, just the, the, the actual numbers and say, if you need internally to close your books the way Wall Street does, where it's like there's a permanent record of like this is how you published it once, even if you change it, you can have it. It's there somewhere. But it's just and, and we yeah we actually we I mean we snapshot like every every execution of a dashboard is a snapshot. Basically, mode is essentially like generating snapshots every time it runs. It's, it is a little right. bit non-typical in a good dashboard way. Like where a lot of dashboards are just like this is what it was run last. We wiped it next time. Like mode is actually basically just incrementing itself forward. Okay, but it doesn't it doesn't make it easy like. There, there is another version of that where it's sort of like actually sort of snapshot it in a in a named way. It's sort of like mm -hmm. Redshift will take snapshots of itself, but kind of like it doesn't keep them, but you can imagine it does. It like keeps a thousand. You actually want to have like named snapshots that are, okay, this is one that I might want to easily return to rather than having to scroll through three months. Yeah, because by the way, the difference between you, you inject data into the past, right? Oh, there's a new customer that showed up in the past from some data ingestion change versus, <laughs> versus a yeah. rule a rule changed in, in, in the data. Right. So, so I think that would be an easy, like then that would cover, like, I think most companies that are not, let's call it very public or very, you know, kind of have very strong reporting rules now gets, okay. Now gets to the, 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 let me, let let me give you my favorite one that we, we talked about before we started today, which is, all right, you, you have a metric, let's call it number Let's do, you'll, we'll use a census metric, right? Like the number of sinks that an org has done per week, per month, per day, whatever. And the engineering team makes a change that breaks the SQL, right? That breaks the analytics definition. So for example, it introduces a new concept of like workspaces where people can be invited into them. They can be outside your org. And so how you compute the total number of sinks per org is Incorrect. Here's the thing, an easier example, because an example like we've had to do, which is we used to have one paid plan. At some point, we introduced two. And so it Perfect. used to be every customer was basically paid free, or well, imagine that. I don't know exactly what it was. But it's like, say we had, we had like a flag on the thing of like customer account status paid free. At some point, it was like account status free basic premium. Right. And, and every customer had to migrate forward. Like, no, there was no such thing as just paid anymore. You had to be mm -hmm. one or the other. Mm hmm. But the feature set split where like there was actually not the, the, what was paid. Like when we lost basically premium, we lost premium with additional features. Some yeah. features that this were in paid. This, moved is a good, to, yeah. this is a very good example. This is actually so there's, a very there's no, good example. 
there's no paid idea anymore. Like basically some of those features fell into, into basic. Some of those features moved up to premium. Every customer had to migrate and we had to like sort of migrate them. But now we have a history and our, all of our reporting is around like, okay, let's look at what you were. And all of that now says basic or premium, even though those concepts did not exist prior to yeah. this change. So yeah. what do we do? Like what, how many, how many premium customers did we have prior to a premium plan existing when our data currently only supports premium or pay? Right. Right. This is, yeah. So this to me is, I have no idea. Well, and here's the funnier thing in that example, like the product team, the engineering and product team made a decision, right. To migrate what you guys called paid mm. into one of the two. They made a decision. Like, like you said, you deleted the concept of just the paid plan. So, so the engineering team didn't have the luxury of, cause they could have done all the people who are on the paid plan go on what they call legacy paid. And then now there's basic and premium and only going forward will be pe people on the basic and premium. That's what people do usually. And, yeah, and we actually may have done something like this. It's the actual, even the easier version of this is probably you collapse two plans into one where we used to have two tiers. We're just like, ah, it's all just one paid. So now everybody just gets the same feature set. And like, what is the past then when the only plans we currently have are paid? Right. What do we, what do we do with the time when it was actually split? Like, I don't know. Yeah. And like, to me, there's, there's one part, which is like, okay, fix the query, right? Fix the data model. Like, okay, that's hopefully you cat that one. You're going to catch pretty fast. Suddenly it'll be like, how come there's no paid customers? Like, oh, cause you're looking for the string paid in reality. It's now the string basic versus yeah. premium, right? Like, okay. You, you, like, but I'm sure this happens all the time. And there's a hilarious, I'm sure a delay between a engineering database migration, which changes the, what mm. columns exist for plans versus the, the analytics change. But yeah, what should the chart show? the month after. <laughs> and I'm going to go ahead and say one of two things occur. I think definitely the, you can't do the one we said earlier. You can't just rewrite the past because like there's no simple, you have to make a decision. So mm -hmm. some companies probably just fork the dashboards at that point. They say there's dashboards going all the way up to August of 2022 and September on it's, it's a new dashboard because that's easy. And then you don't have to ask yourself, like, why doesn't it go backwards? It's like, ah, yeah, this data doesn't exist before that. More likely, right. The analytics team will be required to make a decision about what the meaning was of the past and reinterpret it using the new meanings. Right. And you're going to rewrite the past, but you're going to create a rule. Like you're going to create a similar rule. You're going to say, well, let me invent something called legacy plan. Mm -hmm. And it'll be tied to, you're going to make a weird statement, right? You're going to go like, okay, so they're on the merge paid plan, but they started prior. Does the database have whether it was basic or not? Oh, it's gone. Like that's, that information is totally gone. The engineering team didn't save that for me. Okay. Should I just make a guess? Should like, should I just assume they're all in basic? Like, or pre you're going to make a decision. You're going to invent it. You're going to invent meaning. And I think that's what we would do. Honestly, like, I think we would kind of be like, well, in, in some way, like essentially snapshot the old dashboard to whatever that means. Probably it'd be like, okay, let's make sure we have some view of it somewhere. I don't know exactly. Save a screenshot, take export it somewhere just for the sake of like, somebody wants to go find this, I guess they can. And then probably rewrite history. Say in the, in the non-collapsing case, in the case where you go from like paid to basic and premium, we probably would just say like, well... Whatever people are on now is that's the thing. It was it, it, the, the split was essentially like what the plan they would have been on had they been on this. That seems good enough. Let's do that. On the one where it collapses, we probably would just like wipe that concept from the fact that it ever existed. It would probably be like the two plans in this dashboard as though they never were. Every everybody who was busy who was pre 
premium or basic is just paid. They were always paid in the past. Like it, you could, you would arrive at this dashboard and never know that anything had ever changed in history. And I think that's probably what we, in most, and I think the kind we did this, we do have like legacy plans and it becomes a really awful thing too, to be like, Oh, we've got yeah. legacy, this legacy, that, but, but in the case where we didn't do that, I suspect we would just be like, well, let's all pretend what we say happened, happened and nobody asked any questions about it. Yeah. Yeah. There's advantages to, you know, the state of my database and the state of my application is just what I see. Like what I see now is the state. There's nothing for me to compute, right? Mm -hmm. The advantage of that is it's simple, right? It's so, so simple. You read the table. It tells you what it is. Plan, done, boom. But it's super lossy when there's change. And then there is the more correct but much more costly approach, which is like nothing is ever destroyed. Everything is like an append log of changes. So when you use Stripe as a billing system, it will not let you delete a plan, right? It will not. Yeah. It will allow you to archive it so you can't assign it to new people, but it will not let you remove it because it's designed around this idea that like everything is just an append change. I will present to you a UI that is clean with the latest versions of truth, but but I will not remove the, the history, right? But the, to the software developer, that's more complex, right? Because now it's... I'll give you a great example. Like, let's say you swipe a credit card to pay, right? And what that does is it generates an event, like credit card swipe, succeed, fail, right? Something like that. And it fails. When you swipe, it fails. You swipe, it fails. And, and then you swipe, it succeeds. If I'm using only the event to understand what's going on, like, I need to aggregate that to know at the moment in time T, like, did they fail, fail, succeed? In which case their billing plan is like currently like good. Or was it, you know, fail, fail and succeed hasn't happened yet? Or is it fails, you know? And so if I only have the event, it's, I don't have the state. Mm -hmm. And like, this is why data teams, I think are often like, they should try to create like, is delinquent. Like they should do the computation so that people downstream from them don't try to do it themselves, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and so this is the, the decision you have to, to make. A crazy idea I have that I think we're years away from, but I think would be an amazing outcome for quote, unquote, the modern data stack and all the hype and all the pieces that are coming into play. These of days. which, by the way, you are a card carrying member. Yes. Just so you know. Yes. I am a card carrying member of the, of the religion of the modern data stack. <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. Uh, it, it, so, but I think there is a, something that I'm going to state that is like, does not exist, but would be cool and aspirational. And I think some people probably would agree with me that they want this to happen. And engineers are going to be like, what are you smoking? What if we take your exact example? Right. So you had, what is it? You had basic plan and premium plan. And now as a business, you've decided to collapse those into just mm -hmm. paid plan. 99.99999% of companies, the way this works is you make this decision, you go to the product team and they implement it. Right. And then they migrate the database and they migrate Stripe or whatever they're doing. And like the new database state changes, then that gets people submit, you use 500 stitch to get that data into their warehouse. And now the analytics team is like, ah, I have to adapt, right? This is exactly mm -hmm. the story we told. What if we inverted that? What if we said you make this decision and the truth about what plan someone is on is not the master copy of this is not in the app. It's in the analytics team. So the analytics team will decide how to expose this new reality, right? And I would say the analytics team would do the, the, the Stripe thing, which is to say, we're not going to remove data. We are going to create a new third column, right? Is like starting that only starts existing here. And we're going to create the rule for if you are on, you know, previous, if you're on one of these two plans, like 
we'll create it. Like think of it as a, a coalesce, right? Like, a, like almost like a, a DBT model that says like, you know, if you want to know the current state of the world, it is an aggregation of basic premium and now new paid thing. And I'm going to expose to the app a data model that says Ben is a paid customer as opposed to a basic customer. And the app, the app will just get that state. The same way if you use Stripe as your source of truth for your plans and nothing in your app, which most people don't do this, like most people have state in their app, but if you rely on Stripe, you would have a customer ID and you would just say, get current plan, right? Like, and Stripe will just tell you their current plan. It will not tell you, well, it's actually this amalgamation of like the three plans it had that we've collapsed into this new plan, right? It won't tell you that. It'll just say, here's the plan. If you want to know the history, you can. And so it would be analytics-driven change rather than product team-driven change and that the analytics team has to react. Like that that's, I think, a goal we should head towards. That's, yes, that's somewhat terrifying to me of like- Of course, because that know, means the we, analytics we team- We write a bad query, product. suddenly like the entire product is like, everybody's suddenly on a free plan with no features. Like, correct. Um, correct. 100% correct. This is- There is- but but then okay. like the the the, to, the Spotify analytics team right makes the what is it the Discover Weekly like the, the the every Monday in Spotify you're like hot new songs like that is coming from the analytics team right like if they screw up and that thing doesn't fill in like there's no songs and you're gonna wake up on Monday there's a like, hey and there's no songs in my in my Discover Weekly it's scary yeah there, there, I mean, so there's certainly a version of that where it's like or a point there which is like data teams like I don't want to do that but like someone has to have that responsibility why not you like okay you know like okay just do your job better and not to say like data teams do a bad job but more of like okay you have to do things with the responsibility knowing that it affects stuff in the same way that an engineering team has to do stuff do things with the responsibility knowing it affects people so maybe how do you deal with a mistake yeah <laughs> hey sorry we put you on the premium plan you actually didn't pay for it we're gonna take away what you've been doing I'm sorry <laughs> don't worry about it there is like a version of that though that I wonder if this is like a lighter version of that maybe. And I, this is a completely me not knowing anything about how computers work, hmm. but it's if analytics and st if, if you get to that point, if you're trying to chase that outcome, yep. one version of that is okay. Like you basically pump a bunch of data into some analytical system and an analyst has to figure out what plan you're on. And like you write a bunch of like DBT stuff, like the DBT would never do this obviously. Cause like it's not real time enough, but like you write a bunch of stuff and an effect is that, and that's like the thing that determines it. And okay, great. There's another step that's like a little bit to me more an intermediate step where if you are doing that, does it change the way that you develop software such that your data models are more analytically driven than they are like operationally driven and like transactionally driven? Like, mm -hmm. like basically could, and this is a guy, sure there's, you know, hacker news could go have a field day with this. And I'm sure they do once every three days about someone who has like event driven application development, you know, where the entire thing is already just big build on events. And so within the application, it does all this stuff before you. And like, yep. in effect, what that basically does is it means the analytics part of that is just a copy of the events that are actually happening. Like there is, there is a one-to-one -one mapping of you have the events in the application, you have the events in the analytics stuff. You can do all of these computations the same because the apps have to do themselves instead of like resetting state or whatever. So it's like, instead of the analyst having to do it, you in effect can kind of do it for free, I guess, by the app, like basically setting things up for you to make it easy. I would assume this exists. I assume somebody has like yeah, written I something mean, in Rust ben, when, that makes this if work. If you think about it, here's a classic like census interview question, if you will, which is like for an engineer, which is like... Okay, I'm going to figure out that I have no shot at a job at census. Well, no, no, this is like, people have to stop to think about it. It's like, how do you think the YouTube page or Facebook page or take your pick of any, you know, kind of modern, large scale social media kind of feed app how do you think that page is presented to you? How do you think it's constructed? 
they do select star from Olivia Rodrigo videos and right. show it to me. Right. Exactly. Right. And then boom, done. And, and, and it's great. I click on all of them. It's awesome. It's awesome. <laughs> and then everyone, you live in the world of mass media still. It's great. We only need one artist at a time, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then some analyst just changes like, who's the artist today? Okay, this artist. Okay, select star. We'll just when's, change the yeah, when's, when's our new album? That's all I care. I don't even know. That's what I need. I've Googled but that after this. Those pages are effectively built in this way. There's, It's not a transactional DB that tells you here's Ben's YouTube homepage, right? It's entirely dynamic, right? Mm -hmm. There is a store of comments. There is a store of videos. Recommendations are the result of an algorithm that is happening relatively live for you. I mean, obviously they pre-compute a bunch of things so that it can happen faster. But, you know, Ben's recent recommendations tied to this video, like that's, all of this is dynamic tied to a, effectively warehouse scale mm. data set. So, so if, the, and then some, and so there is precedent for, for how apps like 95% of web apps are not built this way, but large scale ones are built. This way. Yeah. I guess it's like, you could, I guess actually the, the, in the big ones, you know, Facebook for instance, or, or, or YouTube are ones that are like primarily driven by that. I guess that's actually the majority of the app is that content that it's yeah. that, you know, if you're, if you're Amazon, sure. Okay. You click around and most of the things in Amazon are like select from database item, whatever, whatever. But there's a little bit of like a recommendation banner. That the recommendations is. are there. The ads are there. Yeah. Right? There's all this stuff. But, but like on, on YouTube, like that's all it is. All it it's is. is right. there, there's nothing there that's probably like actually not. That. Yeah. Yeah. Like your account settings page. Like <laughs> that's yeah. it. To st stick to, you know, buzzwords you want to make fun of, right? Like everyone loves talks about data apps for the last six months, it feels like. I don't make fun of those. I don't even make fun of them. No more than normal. <laughs> I'm not a hater. Uh, <laughs> it's not but a like, joke <laughs> what is yeah what is a data like at some level everything's a data app like like it's it's if you are able to hit production slas then everything is a data app at that point then i no longer buy that there's a distinction but, i mean that's kind of actually that's, that's an interesting question like i actually had a conversation with someone about this today of like data apps so what are we going to get to data apps and it's like yeah i mean one i do make fun of the data apps is like data apps is a dashboard with a toggle like yes okay that, that mm -hmm. i guess you know, like, like th that, that's basically where we sort of landed is, is data apps are, are dashboards with like widgets. No, um, was there input? Is there user input? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, but not like streams, right? Not, not, it's like, it's like search box in YouTube. It's not, you're not adding data to the, to the world. Correct. It's like, so streamlit, streamlit. And I'm like, I am, I, I think streamlit's kind of a cool thing, but like streamlit is a data app where you build basically a bunch of widgets that you connect or, or shiny or whatever. You like drag a slider and something mm -hmm. changes. Which I guess you could kind of call YouTube that. Like you basically have an input thing that's like a very open thing you type and it surfaces you a bunch of stuff, like I guess. But I generally think like that version of like the, the dashboards with the widgets data app is is not a great definition. It's like this actual other definition where like the entire experience is essentially driven by something that is data oriented, even though it may not feel like the thing you're going there is for data itself. YouTube to me, probably a pretty good example because so much of it is now just like, let me show you the things I think you like. The example I always use is Yelp or like, Yelp is really a data app. It's just an exposure. All it is is exposing a bunch of review data to me, but it's exposing it to me in a way that actually makes sense as opposed to like some dashboard. But there's maybe like more and more things like this that are actually the YouTube version of this where none of it works. It feels like the definition is going to be like something fuzzy between how much do you input and transact and store. Like the comments on the YouTube app or the comments like where do those go, right? Like, so in YouTube, you're still writing some data, but you're writing them to this comments service, right? That then surfaces it back to you. But well, I was going to look this up. Feels like that's the definition difference. Like the difference between Word and a data app is that Word, you're you're 
creating knowledge. You're creating new information mostly primarily. And, 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 and that's not the case in a data app. You're primarily consuming. Is, is this, is that going to be the line? I, so I, I had a version of this, which I Substack appears to have forgotten to like renew their DNS stuff. That's a data um, app. <laughs> yeah. So I can't, I can't actually look at this, but, but I had a, I had a definition of this that I had of something along the, it was, it was actually very different than that. It was more around like, to me, a data app is, and any sort of application that you go to where you're trying to accomplish something that cannot be accomplished without like data to drop, like data is the core experience. So like so there's, there's an interesting question here, of like Salesforce, why is Salesforce not a data? All it is is a, is a UI for a bunch of data. Like, why is that not a data app? I don't think it doesn't feel like one, but I don't, I don't actually know why that would be the case. And I had a, I had a thought on this that actually maybe I can find it somewhere else, but like, yeah, there's not a good, a good definition here. I so first of all, for sure, there's no data. Like the, the name is more hype than 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 scientific. That, that's for sure. So I, I, I proudly state that this is more a, a brand in search of a, an answer. But I would say if if you had to define it now, it's a it's an application interface in that it has the interactivity widgets that you'd expect from from an app that you wouldn't get necessarily out of a dashboard. But it is effectively read only and. Mm. Salesforce is definitely not read-only. You are logging phone calls. You are editing the name of the customer. You are moving a deal across pipeline stages. You are like, you're editing a lot. Now, mm. as a percentage, are you reading more than editing? Of course. But most apps you're reading more than editing with even Word, right? You're technically reading more than you're writing. Yeah. So, so, but that's, that's, I think data apps basically don't input data much right now, but that might change. Hmm. And once, once, yeah, I mean, creating not, data not in, in there, editing it isn't. Then at that point, uh, then then there's no distinction. And don't don't input data. Okay, this is let's see. This is what I said. The term data app is sometimes used to describe interactive reports or notebooks with lots of filters and toggles. To me, these are blinged out dashboards, not data apps. A data app is a, as a product, a CRM an application applicant tracking system, designed tool, task management app, for which data is essential to the experience of using it. Which is that's. That's not helpful. Ben, I think that's a, I'm going to call you out. That's, that's Weasley definition. Yeah. I don't think that's good. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you. That was not a good, a good answer there. I had a different version of this. I thought that was said something as being a data app versus not, but I can't find it. But yeah, that's, that's a bad definition. I think, I think I probably made that definition mostly because I just wanted to say that most data apps are blinged out dashboards. I was probably just trying to figure out a way to say that, which uh, I actually never agree. actually came up with a more positive definition. So I, I agree with the, the, the hater definition, it, it, but that doesn't mean it's a bad thing, right? Like blinged out dashboards might be actually one of the best things data teams can do and important, but data apps, if you could only browse Instagram, it would still be called an app, right? I think if you couldn't post a photo, it would still be mm. an app. However, it's unlikely it would have gotten anywhere. <laughs> and so... So you're, it's hard to imagine view, an app in which you're not creating something. Like, your, your your view is basically like the the line between an app and a non-app. Essentially, if you had to put like one simple definition on it, is it's it's creation. It's like some set of users have to be creating in it. Like a like the the blinked out dashboard is is thought like that is a valuable thing. There's nothing wrong not to put that down, but it's like not an app because all you're doing is actually just like changing stuff. It's 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 Instagram without posting, whereas you have to be able to post. Whatever yeah. that means in the context, you got to be able to you post. You know, I, Ben, I'll take out a, a recent legalese definition. The Apple lawsuits, since we're talking, we talked about Twitter and Elon Musk. Yeah, yeah, like, 
may as well get into Apple, right? Like the whole, you know, Netflix takes like Apple takes 30% and all these things. And you're not allowed to buy outside of Apple. If you remember the, the Apple guidelines, like they created a special category of apps, right? And they call them reader apps. Now, the goal there was to screw with, you know, Kindle, Amazon and Netflix, et cetera, mm-hmm. right? So that the idea was they didn't want you to buy digital goods without paying the Apple 30% tax, right? That's, that's roughly it. But it's actually an interesting name. I think of those as like, you are not creating any new digital thing in there. Like Kindle is purely reading. Netflix is purely watching. There's not even commenting, right? <laughs> Kindle, you could argue, you can highlight, I think. <laughs> so you could argue that's creating data of some sort. Yeah. But that's like hyper limited. So I think data apps may fall into that same distinction. It's like, it's a fancy word for saying, it's an app. It's more interactive than a dashboard, for sure. Maybe it's even delivered single-handed, like single destination. Like you, you open that as opposed to opening up, you know, mode and then going into a dashboard. But a true app to me is, is, is some amount of interactivity and then some amount of creation. I've never thought about this before, but there's something kind of wild to think about Netflix as being as enormous as it is that nobody can create anything. There's not a single piece of like user-generated content. In there Netflix. is one. Thumbs up, thumbs down, and your add to list. Technically, you could argue yeah, that. I didn't know you could do that. That's it. Add to list. And I think you can thumbs up. I think. I think they just, killed the star rating. Wasn't that an epic story in the data world of like yeah, star ratings don't, don't work? We switched to thumbs up, thumbs down. So it's, it's literally you can just up, and you can have like a, a list of your favorites. I guess you can have that's like it. your shows or whatever. That's it. That's that's, that's yeah. It's still kind of wild. That like that's that's like <laughs> this is the pre- like in some ways like building that seems great. Here, these are the parameters you have to do. Is like what is the user generated content? It's literally just a thumbs up or thumbs down. You probably yeah. just have to keep track of whether or not this user thumbs up or thumbs down this thing. That's all there is. Like That's all there is. It is. It, yeah, it's a data app. I mean, is, 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 is there <laughs> you anything? Could add likes. Couldn't you add likes to dashboards in mode and like you know the, the add favorite yeah. dashboards? Good to go. You should add but a like you at button. least. But you can like cre- like you know even if you're a dashboard consumer, like there's plenty of people within mode who are obviously creating like you know it's, totally. it's, there's a lot of user generated content. Totally. Like is there mode anything? Is yeah, yeah. Yeah. Is there anything at anywhere near the scale of Netflix for which there is so little actual user generated content? Ooh. That's a really good question. Oh, that's really good. That might be the largest scale product in use with no no real content creation of any kind. What what else would qualify? Like, There's nothing even close. Like like Amazon sort of, but you can you can post stuff. And Amazon is probably the best answer because most, but still, but most of it is like you're browsing and buying, right? Like yeah, commenting is probably very very like most people don't, right? Ninety nine percent of people probably don't yeah. comment. Amazon, yeah, like funny enough, Amazon. but you see what, it, here's the thing, Ben, nobody used to describe Amazon as an app. Sure. But what made it, so what made Amazon an app though? Comments? Like, doesn't seem like that's right. Is it that the page is like, sort of, does it just load like big giant, like, like why is Amazon an app? Is it, well, here's a question. Is Amazon an app? And if Amazon is an app, what is the New York Times? Oh boy. Because the interactions okay. are basically the same. Okay. You're forcing me into like, okay. So, so an app technologically speaking is is like they all qualify if they you know the the container that is like the piece of code that runs on your computer to 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 display it is sufficient to state that you're an app to be fair like i think if you wanted to get really really pedantic like hey 
it's an executable on your phone that you launch and it just so technically technically yeah. we'll call those all apps but let's remove the fact that they can be an app on your phone or on your computer and let's just think about the web pages right and 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 even just like the way we think it like amazon like okay that's an app but new york times i feel like we are reflexively like no that's a that's a website yeah so i would say Amazon should not be known as an app. I, I will, I'll, I'll go, I'll go like Amazon, the core, right? Like not let's remove Kindle like, and Amazon.com. Yeah, it's like you buy stuff. I think Amazon.com you should not think of as an app. I think you should think of it as a store. The same way you think of target. You don't think of target.com as an app. Yeah. I think you should think of Amazon as a store. Okay. It's I know, just it's like, weird. The, well, but I think it's, it's like, I would buy that because it's like, it's not Microsoft word it, is an app. Yeah. Amazon is a store. <laughs> like, it's, it's like just a store that's like, it's got a bunch of fancy features that like make it yeah. feel kind of modern and it's got modules and stuff. But really it's just like, it's a well-designed website or a, a, a well, a website that is like, you know, from the 21st century as opposed well, a website to, is telling you what it physically is, right? A website is just a way of saying it's HTML and like uh, served over the, the URL, right? Like an app, if we're getting nerdy is like, yeah, it's, so it's JavaScript or C++ served from your computer, your phone, or your, you know, it's like, okay, that's the mm -hmm. lazy, like narrow definition, but amazon.com is not an app. Yeah. I don't think of Amazon. As hmm. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm on board with that. So New York times is, I guess also not an app. And so I think this fits my, I think I'm willing to come around to like, if you're not creating some content, like you're not an app. And if you wanted to fight me on this, it'd be like, what is a video game? So a video game is deeply, deeply interactive, but you're not, you're not writing into a database. You're not, you know, you're not creating a document at the end, like in Word or, or something like that. Mm -hmm. So, so is that an app? I think I would still say yes, because the interactivity is so significant. Like, like it's, you know, and then there's enough state related to your interactions that is being stored along the way that it makes it an app. Okay. This is, yeah, this is a. I think this is still a better definition than what did you call it? Something that has data at its core or whatever. You know, I, yeah, it was it was a bad definition. What could I, I? That was I will say that was the definition that was in the the Google Doc for the for the actual post. I don't know it made the final cut because I can't load it because Substack is down. <laughs> I, I would assume the final definition was way better. Definitely added, yeah. You know, that one, no way that one was made the final cut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It almost certainly did. You had an errata. Or if not, if not, you can publish an errata. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll issue a correction. You'll issue a correction. But really, Substack needs to issue a correction for still being down. So, you know. That's wild. That's like a 10 minute, that's a town for 10 minutes. That's, yeah, it's been, it's been, let's see. Sub, what is Substackstatus.com? Hold on, Ben. It's in my email. What was the name of that post? I'll just find it in my email history. Oh, uh, what was that post? You don't know the it name was, of the post. You have a lot of posts. It might have been the snowflake one. It might have been I the snowflake. snowflake one. The I snowflake. I don't think. Oh, I think it was. I think it was a trillion. The trillion there dollar question. What's a data app? I'm going to read your actual post. As oh, best God. I can tell, the most common definition is a dashboard with interactive widgets. Didn't correct. A it. sales forecasting report that lets you tweak assumptions about sales cycles. Okay. In all these cases, the data apps are overwhelmingly tools for consumption. So you see, you agree with me on this. Oh, okay. So I did change this. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Good for me. They are not different. They are not fundamentally different from classic BI tools. They just present data in more narrow purpose-built ways. I agree with all this. Huh. So what's a data app? Did I say what a data app was? Well, this is your section about what is a data app. You've got lots of paragraphs uh, about. Oh, well, we don't need to read that. The, you, okay. So your definition at the end is totally valid. You're fine. I'm, I'm going to skip over like the eight paragraphs. And then you just said, you actually come to a definition that is okay. much more boring and like 
similar to why Amazon is an app on your phone because it's a set of like code that runs on your phone. Yeah. You describe an app as programs that run in a data warehouse. That is your definition. That's a bad definition. <laughs> that's, that's I started, start, started strong, but then ended but up with just like, correct. it's, a, it's an executable. Correct. Yeah. 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 It's All an right. executable well, that just happens know. to be where the OS is snowflake, right? Which of course, like that's actually, it's boring, but that's a reasonable description of like definition. It's, it's code that runs on Snowflake. <laughs> it's a Snowflake Yeah, app. that's pretty pretty bad definition. Yeah, this has been down for an hour. Get with but it. Yeah, I think app has become has lost a lot of meaning. App has lost a lot of meaning. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. it's I think it's it's become become like a platform where it's like it's a marketing word. You know, it's like oh, we we have an app where yeah. it's like we are a platform. It's like ah, okay, whatever. It's all kind of just some website software. Yeah, yeah. I think when the iPhone basically said there's an app for that, and like suddenly like it was as as big as getting a website was like, you needed to have an app on the phone, even if it was basically a narrow window into your service. Like app is really a container, not, not a meeting. And, and we'll just have to invent. All this tells me is like, I have to play the brand game. We, we have to invent a better definition for what word and Excel and Google sheets is. Cause those are, I think are categorically different than all these things. I can be able to that. Sweet. Sweet. Okay. So let's get our branding teams on this. You must right. have some. I, I, this, we'll this, get our this is the important. Yeah, this is the important stuff to be working. You see, I think we'll come. This is that we're going to close it this way. But like, who cares what the definitions are as long as you put the right persuasive name on it, then it wins. And like, look at you, like data app. You are contorting yourself, and at the end, you're like, yeah, yeah it's whatever Snowflake yeah. wants. It's what you basically <laughs> said in the post. It's like, ah, it's, it's, all right. It's what Snowflake's marketing team tells me it is. Yeah, you know, yeah. I was persuaded. That's all that matters. Is just exactly. You know, Exactly. So, so maybe the final answer to should you correct your mistakes in data, if it helps you get your end goal, then yes. <laughs> if not, if it bit, maybe not. So I think the spam it, bots yeah. probably keep it to yourself right now. Yeah, bury that one. <laughs> Honestly, if you worked if you worked at Twitter right now and you haven't said a word to anyone and you know there's a mistake in the spam bot, you better. I would not. You would not want to tell anyone. Oh, I think you sit on that. Like, I, I feel like sit if you are that. an analyst, somebody, there is some like mid-level analytics director there that is like aware of these things being off in some direction, either way For up sure. or way down, unclear which way, doesn't matter, but is aware that like, there's all these reasons why this calculation is like too high and too low. And they're like, I am not saying a word. For sure. For sure. This is, this is not my, not my problem. None of this matters. I will, I will take this <laughs> into my grave. <laughs> Listen, everything's incentives, man. Like it's, it, yeah. it definitely goes against that person's incentives across the board. There's like no gain unless you think there's, yeah, unless Elon Musk is going to pay you on the, on the, on the side, but I don't think that would happen. Yeah, so. Unless you want to be a quote unquote whistleblower, like this Correct. scary person, that's, which as far as I can tell is just like someone who used to work there with an opinion that has managed to successfully brand themselves as like a whistleblower yeah. for the, for the public good of Elon Musk's money. Totally. Totally. All right, Ben, this was good. This was very, very good. We, we, we managed to make a show out of this. We'll do this again soon. Sounds good. Well, folks, until next time, this is The Sequel Show. Special thanks to Joe Stevens for our theme song. And thanks to all of you for listening and supporting the show. If you haven't already, subscribe anywhere you listen to podcasts to get notified for future episodes. 